Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we are back, Ricky and I, on our first show together in, I don't know, a month? Uh, We've got some great topics today. Yeah, it's been a while. We have some great topics. Biden appears to be in trouble. Uh, Some polling came out this weekend, which has Democrats like myself in a tizzy. Uh, Then we're going to talk about uh, a UK ban on cell phones in schools and briefly uh, unearth you know, this discussion that we've been having over the course of many episodes about whether schools should limit cell phone usage. Uh, Then we're going to talk about a dramatic rise in homeschooling across America. New data suggests that this pandemic trend is going to outlast the pandemic. And then there's a storm of positive economic data that has us asking whether we as a country have ducked a recession. But before we get to any of that, just a few announcements. Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to put up an episode. I'm going to go through a bunch of the questions that you've sent in around Israel and Palestine. And I'm also going to do an extended explainer on Hamas, like what Hamas is, who they are, what they stand for, what they've done over the course of the past few decades. Uh, On Thursday, we're going to have a really exciting episode. We're going to have Sal Khan from Khan Academy, probably the most important educator in the world. And this is a fascinating interview in which I think we make some news. Like He talks a, a lot about the kind of riveting experience of getting access to GPT-4 to build their AI tool that we've talked about previously on this podcast. So you're not going to want to miss that. Uh, It's also worth mentioning that WeWork, the company has filed bankruptcy this week. So we want to point you uh, back to an episode we did a few months back with Jamie Hodari, who's the CEO of Industrious, uh, WeWork's biggest competitor, potentially future owner of WeWork. Uh, and that was a popular episode. We'll link it again. So people who want to just dust off your knowledge of WeWork, we'll put that in the show notes so you can get that. But Ricky, I was kind of bummed to see this poll from New York Times Siena over the weekend showing that Biden is trailing Trump in five of the six most competitive battleground states. So Trump led Biden by 10 percentage points in Nevada, six in Georgia, five in Arizona, and five in Michigan, four in Pennsylvania. And Biden led Trump by two in Wisconsin. These were all states that I just mentioned, by the way, that Biden had won before. Um, Biden is also uh, in trouble with black voters. Trump is getting 22% of the black vote uh, when he only just won 8% of it in 2020. A lot of thoughts about this, Ricky. Do you think this is a blip or is this real? I don't think this is a blip. I'm not honestly entirely surprised. But some of the reasons are interesting. I mean, 71% think that Biden is too old. Um, The largest gap that they found in terms of people's reasoning was on the economy and who they trusted with the economy. Um, 59% trusted Trump versus 37% with Biden. Only 2% of people say that there's an excellent economy presently. I wish it could be one of them. And within the under 30s demo, that's like a specific issue for Biden, um, specifically on economics, where there's a 28 percent difference in terms of their trust. So I think that there's a generational shift. There's a racial shift. There's pretty much everything that could possibly look bad for Biden is looking bad for Biden right now, which I mean, it doesn't entirely shock me considering I think the, the best thing that the Biden administration could kind of benefit from in terms of, or or I guess the campaign could benefit from right now is if you could actually let Trump be out in the open and sending stupid tweets around and stuff. I think when he will actually hear him, people get sick of him and might actually tack towards Biden. But the fact that he's been quarantined into his little truth social 
echo chamber. I, I think a lot of people, you know, we're not really hearing from him quite as much as we used to. And and Biden, we're hearing every time we do hear something from him, it's a roll of the dice of whether it's actually going to be a full sentence. So I, I'm unsurprised. Yeah, I, I did a whole segment last week on, you know, Trump's recent appearances. And needless to say, I know you've given Biden a hard time for his verbal gaffes. Trump has been really giving Biden a run for his money. You know, multiple instances where he's confusing Biden and Obama, forgetting which countries he's talking about, and doing his standard sort of rambling through and making no sense. Uh, but are there kids in the pool playing with his leg hair? Oh, stop it. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> uh, all of this is to say, we're going to talk about economic data at the end of this podcast. And what I find puzzling about all this is that by almost every measure, Americans are doing better than they have in a long time. And I'm not just talking about the most affluent Americans. I'm talking about almost every measure. Uh, and so we'll get to that because that's baffling. But uh, my old boss, David Axelrod, who was Obama's chief strategist, and I was his, his assistant on that campaign, Axe has been pretty forthcoming out here. He tweeted out, and I'll read this tweet about Biden. And he said, quote, it's uh, very late to change horses. A lot will happen in the next year that no one can predict. And Biden's team says his resolve is to run is firm. Only Joe Biden can make this decision. If he continues to run, he'll be the nominee of the Democratic Party. What he needs to decide is whether that is wise, whether it's in his interest or the country's. Mm -hmm. So basically saying, is Biden running because Biden wants to stay president and be historic, or is he doing it truly because it's in the best interest of the country? He was asked about this on CNN. This is what he had to say. I'm not reacting to one particular poll, but, uh, you know, a whole body of, uh, of research and conversations with people. And my concerns, I want to make clear, I think Biden's been a great president. I think he's done things that have generational, will have generational impact and importance. I think he's, you know, been honorable in the office. I have nothing but good things to say. But as I've said for like a couple of years now, the issue is not uh, for him is is not uh, political. It's actuarial. And you can see that in this poll. I mean, there's just a lot of concern about the age issue. And that is something that I think he needs to uh, ponder. Just do a check and say, is this the right thing? Uh, to do. I suspect that he will say yes. But time is fleeting here. And this is probably the last moment uh, for him to do that. So yeah, I agree with him. I actually, you know, rarely tweet, but I tweeted out support of what Axelrod is saying. And my, yeah, my position is and has been, and I've been talking about this pretty publicly for a while, is that Biden has the lowest approval rating for any post-war president, save Carter. Uh, he would be the oldest president ever. The majority of Americans think he's too old. So uh, an AP poll in August found that 77% of Americans, including 69% of Democrats, viewed Biden as too old to be effective for four years. So 69% of Democrats. Now, meanwhile, you're looking at you know most Democratic strategists and politicians, et cetera, and save a few people like Blumenthal, who kind of came out a little bit saying that he's concerned. Most people are pretending like there's an emperor mm -hmm. um, has new clothes moment here. We're pretending like everything's okay. It is not okay. I personally, I, I, there's a, you know, I've been critical of Biden here and there. I have a lot of love for Biden. And I also think he's got a lot of things he can claim credit for. That is not the same thing as saying he should be the guy to grab the baton for this next race. I squarely think he is not. 
Um, I would continue to support him if he did, but I would support a corpse over Trump. So that doesn't make me representative of the American people. I, I mean, I think that there's, I've noticed a shift in the Overton window recently in terms of what you're allowed to say about Biden, like SNL all of a sudden is making fun of him being for being old, which, you know, I think was an untouchable topic before. Um, I think back to about a year ago when I said something to that effect on, on Bill Maher's show and he said that I was prejudiced and now he's calling him like Ruth Bader, Biden Ginsburg or something. Um, and I, I get I the do, violin out for you, Ricky. And no, I'm saying I think that there we're like all of a sudden there's I I, I think that that is is leading um, the conversation in a way that like all of a sudden it's somehow acceptable to point out this inevitability. I think it'll become more and more acceptable as more and more of these polls demonstrate the fact that this could be a complete losing factor. I mean, I I said maybe I'll have to unearth this clip from Andrew Yang's podcast from the midterm cycle. But I said, I don't think there's any way that they're going to run Biden again or that he can run again. And I still kind of feel that way. Like I, I and it seems as though, I mean, I, I, it's one thing for someone like Cornell West or Marianne Williamson, who's not actually, or RFK Jr. for that matter, who's not as in the Democratic Party presently in office anywhere to come out and, and run against, run against Biden and challenge him in the primary process. But finally, someone is Dean Phillips, a representative that I think very few people had actually heard of until he came out, but he was on Bill Maher on Friday and I, I found um, his resolve to actually put himself out on the line to be something that's admirable. I mean, I think someone's got to do it. And so here's a clip from that. I read the polls like you do. That's what's alarming. I mean, Trump is winning people under 30. In the, uh, people under 30, thank God they don't vote. 80. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> 80, 83% of Democrats under 30 want a different nominee. Yeah. I mean, number, you know, a lot of politicians lie, but the numbers don't. And it's not like others aren't doing this in a sort of a shadow campaign. I mean, Gavin Newsom, our governor, seems to be all over the world. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, and you know, there's, <laughs> you know, they're going to the battleground states in the primary. They're really doing it. I feel like at least you are honest and you're saying, no, I'm gonna do it. Just do okay. it. Just do it. Just do it. I mean, we still, by the way, there are 21 of us on the ballot in New Hampshire. If you're 35 years old, you were born in the United States, you can go there, bring a $1,000 check, and become a candidate for president of the United States of America. Thank goodness, you know? Thank goodness. Okay. Thank um, goodness. But you, I mean, you, were, you, were, you don't really want to do this for yourself necessarily, right? You were just saying somebody needs to do this. I spent a year encouraging, passing right. the torch. This is a moment where, to me, it's just so clear how broken our politics are and how broken the two-party system is, uh, in my view. I mean, the fact that we have two candidates who are breezing through primaries that actually the majority of Americans don't want either, and that there's a culture of conformity and fear of uh, on, on either side of speaking out and actually saying as much or as of challenging someone. And there's a such an entrenched structure that prevents anyone from rising up and actually uniting the middle or independents or people who might be skeptical of either of the two candidates. I mean, I, I, I would be curious 
I bet you could win like a ballot measure if we could just get people to vote on saying like, okay, let's just have a ceasefire and we promise not to run our shitty candidate and you guys promise not to run your shitty candidate and let's just have like the runners up run or something. I mean, literally anything but this. It feels like such a nightmare scenario that we're just hurling towards another Trump and Biden standoff. And it's, I don't know. I'm It just really, I'm really freaked out about 2024. I'll just say that. Yeah, and I think it's my, this is my sort of obligatory uh, they aren't the same point, but you know, unfortunately for me, the American people, you know, when faced with those that choice, actually think Trump is better at this moment, um, which is wild to me. But you know, I do agree with what you said earlier, which is this is a weird period of time where Trump is not strangely like uh, as public as Biden has been, even though Trump has been you know rolled out in front of one court after another. But I am not with Ron Klain, who's the chief of staff, or the Biden spokespeople who are like, yeah, we'll just wait. Everything will kind of sort itself out. And, you know, historically, the polls are lower here, Biden, 20, Obama 2012, and yada, yada, yada. But I'm not with them on that. Like, I'm yes, I think Trump is a historically weak candidate, but I also think Biden is historically weak for his own reasons. I don't think they're morally equivalent, yada, yada, yada. This is not that segment. But I do think that there is a ton of fire here. And if I were Gretchen Whitmer, if I were Shapiro in Pennsylvania, if I were some of these folks, I would be strongly, Jared Polis in Colorado, I'd be strongly considering running because the, the vast majority of Democrats, like you know, my Democratic friends um, in the establishment listeners might get mad at me, but I'm with the majority of Democrats who think that we need a different option here. Uh, and you could think that and have certain positive things to say about Biden, but I, I think it's time to consider somebody else. I also think that it, one of the interesting pieces of this data that's driving the data is among voters of color is the Israel stuff that's going on. And I I have a question about, you know, a lot of people are looking at that data saying, well, you know, when when the sort of Gaza Israel fight is in the rearview mirror, then those numbers will bounce back perhaps. But I also have never seen an issue a foreign policy issue since the Iraq war probably that has had quite the domestic heat as the Israel-Palestine conflict. And so I'm not sure that will fully fade a year from now. I think that people have very strong opinions about this. And I think when people say they're pissed at Biden, I tend to believe them. Now, I do think yeah, when they look at is Trump- Is that going to make them vote for Trump? I don't no, think. but they might not they vote. They might not vote. Yeah. Because yeah. once they're reminded of Trump's position on the issue, I'm not sure they're going to be satisfied. But they- but I do think they could not show up. And these are very slim margins. I have to say, I, it's been a while since we've been on the podcast and I'm far more existentially scared right now. But Yeah, I about the country? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I mean, it's just the closer that we get to this election cycle and the more inevitable that it seems that we have two candidates that the majority of people don't want is just so disturbing. And I don't know how... I, I can't conjure up a a possible conclusion in my mind that's not at least somewhat disastrous. Um, so I don't know. I mean, even yeah. my dad, who's like the most happy-go-lucky guy and remembers World War II and has seen Nazi soldiers with his own eyes, thinks that this is an, a uniquely terrifying period of time. And that does not give me any comfort or solace. This is, I don't know. I'm scared. What's interesting is this This could sort itself out statistically, right? I do How? think that, I do think there is what a- happens? Well, I think on the I think on on the the Republican side, maybe something legal happens to prevent Trump from being on the ballot. I think on the Democratic side, uh, perhaps 
maybe some of these entreaties by people like Axe, who's not a small player here, and um, and then the small players like me, enough of us talk that it gets through, you know, because I like I and Axe and a lot of people are very, very friendly with the people around Biden. The problem is Biden yeah. himself may be a stubborn, you know, he's stubborn, but the heat is going to get to him at a certain point. And this window, the next month or two, it really matters. Also, uh, what but, are they going to do about Kamala? Yeah, well, that's, that's a even, whole other thing. Well, a whole other thing. It, well, it, well, the other thing is statistically, I don't want to be morbid. There's something that could just happen naturally that prevents Biden from running again. Um, he could just become, you know, like, you know, he's at an age now where he could become debilitated. I, I know I joked, joked about a corpse, but like if he truly is incapacitated in some significant ways or starts to show like even more severe decline, uh, he will have to pull back. Uh, but the problem for if, if you share my view is the problem there is like you wait too long and then it's inevitably Harris who, although is slightly uh, more viewed more favorably by the American people right now than than Biden, um, I don't think is going to be a very strong candidate. And I don't know a single Democrat who thinks that she is, including people who'd supported her before. So it is a but but I do think there are, like just to bring a little bit of optimism here. I do think that there are scenarios left to prevent this head to head that uh, a lot of people think is inevitable. But I do think that they involve things other than the voters exercising their will in the primary process that has to be probably extraneous circumstances. UK has banned smartphones, Ricky. This is true. I think this is good news. I think it is good news, although the U.S. has not moved to do the same, although I, that would have to be on the local level. Right. Um, but yeah, the in the U.K., um, they're gearing up to start a prohibition on cell phone use uh, for the entire school day, including uh, leisure time as well, which I think is something that is just generally overlooked. I, like It's not just about, are you on your phone in class? It's, are you sitting at a lunch table around your peers all staring at a phone, which is pretty much my my high school memories. Um, and there's a, a variety of studies that are backing them up in this move, including uh, out of the UK, significant improvement in test scores when they banned phones that were actually twice as dramatic for lower performing and underprivileged students, which I think is pretty huge. Um, they think that it's the equivalent of adding about an additional hour of um, of instruction time per school week, every single week in terms of like what the difference is if you take away their phones or, you know, there's, there's like yonder patches, pouches and stuff where you can just lock them up essentially um, with like a master key. Um, and there's other studies that have shown that um, in a Danish study that younger kids tend to actually play more in their free time and, and um, exercise more as well, that college students have higher grades and lower anxiety with less phone use. Um, and so I think this is overall a, a good move. Um, and just a little shameless self-promo, I wrote uh, for Jonathan Haidt's Substack yesterday about um, why I think smartphones and, and social media addiction is um, such a grave challenge for my generation. And if you want to hear me sound even more doom and gloom, I'm not sure what's happened to me, <laughs> but that article is really depressing. Um, but that's on John John Haidt's Substack after Babel. Well, okay, we'll link to that. We'll link to the article that summarizes this UK move. And I think does a really good job of summarizing all the research. It's by Kevin Mankin in the 74. And we'll also link to, uh, we've had a lot of discussions about this, but I think the the deepest one was with Doug Lamov about mm-hmm. cell phone bans. We'll, we'll link to that as well. So a lot of links today, uh, but let's move on, Ricky. There is an earthquake happening in Kata 12. I 
I think it, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I think this data from the Washington Post is really startling. It's amazing. Yeah. So um, homeschooling had incre- has increased 51% since 2017, which is a five-year period. I mean, that's or six, I guess, roughly, but that's staggering. That's 1.9 million to 2.7 million students. Um, and this is something that's, you know, post-pandemic, there was the, of course, the, the huge, uh, uh, swell of, of homeschooling during the pandemic, but this is sustained. So the Washington Post uh, looked at thousands of school districts across the country. There are 11 states where they couldn't get data, but 32 states with very reliable data. Um, and they found that while homeschooling went up by 51%, obviously in, in relative terms, private schools went up by 7% and public schools down by 4%. Um, and so since the pandemic, there was a, a, a Brief period of time where it was a 60% increase and it's now tapered down to, to 51%, but it does seem sustained. The places where it's the most dramatic are uh, large blue areas. 103% increase in New York, 108% in DC, 78% in California. Um, and a few things that I thought were uh, interesting or one wrinkle is that in 2019, at the beginning of, of or roughly the beginning of this data, three quarters of homeschooling, homeschooled children were white. And now it's less than half in 2023. So I think that's it's an important demographical shift. It's not just, you know, more more stereotypical kids. It's it's a um, I think this is a, a, a movement that's taken on a completely different flavor and lost a ton of the stigma that I feel like it used to have, at least when I was a kid. Yeah, actually, when I was born, homeschooling was illegal in most parts of the country. And so this has obviously moved quite a bit. And, and the Washington Post, I think, does a really good job of talking about why uh, these families have decided to leave. Now, they, they have incomplete data. There's a bunch of states that don't report data. Uh, but like places like Texas, which are obviously really important for this discussion. Yeah. But uh, the reasons given are uh, 74% of families surveyed said concern about the school environment. 68% said to provide moral instruction. Uh, 64% said dissatisfaction with academic instruction at schools. 62% cited school shootings. 58% cited bullying. 46% uh, cited the schools having to liberal viewpoints, and then 41% uh, said that their kids were being discriminated against. Uh, the, the chart is really interesting. It's also fascinating to compare now homeschooling to other forms of education. So I grew up in a neighborhood that had tons of Catholic schools. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now, homeschooling is, has now uh, eclipsed Catholic schooling in America. So the Post estimates that somewhere between 1.9 million and 2.7 million kids are homeschooled. That's up from 1.5 million in 2019. Uh, Catholic schools, 1.7 million. Now, mm. let's pretend that homeschooling is on the higher end of that, 2.5, 2.7. Charter schools are 3.7 million. So homeschooling could be more than charters. And so I think this is for a lot of people who uh, are, are in my camp of education reform and coming up with alternative mechanisms. I think that this combination of education savings accounts and vouchers and homeschooling is quickly going to suck a lot of the oxygen out of a lot of alternative methods of reform. And we need to start paying more attention to, well, what's happening in homeschooling, which is why we're doing this segment in the first place. And there's a ton of debates around, well, what does this look like? How regulated, if at all, should homeschooling be? And I have kind of gone back and forth all morning on this. Uh, I went to, I watched the um, John Oliver 30-minute segment on this, expecting to hate it because he kind of hates all forms of school choice. But I found myself persuaded by some of the things he was saying. Let's let's go to uh, one point he made about standards. The ceiling of how good homeschooling can be is admittedly very high. 
But the flaw of how bad it can get is basically non-existent. Because to an extent that you may not realise, in many parts of the country, homeschooling is essentially unregulated, which can result in enormous damage. So given that, tonight, let's take a look at homeschooling. And let's start with the fact that there is a lot that we don't know about homeschooled kids, from exactly how many there are to what they are learning. When I said there are around two million of them, the reason that's an estimate is that, depending on the state, homeschool families might not have to report what they are doing at all. In these 26 states, parents simply have to file a notice once a year with officials to let them know that they are homeschooling their child. In these 13, they only have to file a notice once with no requirement to check in ever again. And in the remaining 11, they don't have to notify anyone at all. And when it comes to the education itself, filing a notice is typically where supervision stops, as in most states, there is no oversight and no evaluation by anyone of the academic program and of students' progress. So, Ricky, what do you think? Do you think, do you think there should be more regulation here on homeschooling? I mean, I think it, if there is more regulation, it should be ultra-localized. I, but I, I mean, generally... It's just, I don't feel like, especially this is maybe one of my more radical libertarian uh, thoughts, but like, I just don't think it's really my business what people are, are t teaching their kids. I mean, there's, obviously we have like mechanisms like child protective services and stuff. And if there's something really legitimately threatening to a child or if a child is like severely behind or or there's concerns about neglect in, in terms of their schooling or or their care, then that's one thing. But I think beyond that, like, I just don't feel comfortable saying, oh, you, this is how you should or shouldn't educate your kid, or this is the standard that they they have to meet. What do you think oh, in states that have, give vouchers? Like, so uh, Arizona, Arkansas, Utah, West Virginia, New Hampshire, Florida. Florida gives, I think, something like $8,000 per family. Uh, that Families at homeschool, so they'd be getting public dollars. Like, would you ask anything in return for that? Um... I don't think so because it's not that they're not getting they're not getting public dollars they're just not paying into the tax system. They're getting a, a rebate on their taxes effectively. I think some states give actual vouchers for homeschooling. I may be wrong about that. I I'll leave it up state to state, but I mean I I generally think that it I just don't think the government has like owns your kids or has a right to say this is what you have to or or shouldn't do with your kids and I I do think I mean, obviously, there should be the the standard that you actually are homeschooling them. They shouldn't just be like at home sitting around on an iPad all day or something, or 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 laboring on your family farm or something. I mean, that's certainly one thing. But beyond that, I just don't feel. I don't know. I don't feel comfortable like sticking my hand in there and saying like in, the government is actually going to tell you what what to do with your kid. I. I mean, it takes a considerable amount of buy-in and a considerable amount of um, effort and interest for a parent to decide to to homeschool their child. But what, remember what I was saying? Remember when I proposed a radical idea and I said, and I, and I was half serious about this, where I said, well, parents should be able to opt, in public. <laughs> parents should be able to opt out of the public school system and receive money and kind of decide what to do with the kid. And the kid should be able to get that money later on. You didn't like that idea. So what's different about that and this? I don't remember the details of that idea. I would you would need to come back with a, mm. with a clip for me. Wait, no. I think it's the framing. I think it's the framing. What was the framing? More liberal is coming out of a liberal's mouth. That's my suspicion. <laughs> so I think. Wait, what was the? I don't remember your idea. I, I can't. Remember. We'll have to link to that in the show notes. But okay, on a serious note, I honestly came at this kind of fifty fifty. 
And I'm still very mixed on it because number one, I don't think you can stop families from educating their kids. I, I don't think we can or should stop it. And a lot of what Oliver does in his segment is point out some of the poor choices that families make. Um, here's one where a kid, a homeschool kid, talks about what their schedule looks like. Let's go to this clip. The truth is, in many states, the rules and oversight can be so lax, parents don't ultimately have to teach their kids anything at all. Just watch as this former homeschool student breaks down her daily schedule. This is my actual list of assignments. We've got the date at the top, I would have been 12. First, we've got classical music, which was just turning on classical music in the morning so that everyone could hear it. We've got Bible listening. We've got handwriting and math. That's fairly normal. We've got memorizing the Bible. We've got memorizing poetry. Uh, the poetry was mostly hymns. We've got exercise. That's good. It was usually just walking around the block. Um, and then the whole entire rest of the list is chores and cleaning tasks. Now, obviously, that's not ideal. Now, somebody could say, well, they're still getting some learning in. Uh, here's another uh, situation, another parent that uh, called into a podcast that Oliver plays on the air. This is, I think, quite different matter altogether. We are so deeply invested into making sure that that child becomes a wonderful Nazi and National by story. homeschooling, yeah. we're going to get that done. I mean, I don't, I don't know the context exactly. I was listening to it carefully and tried to figure out whether this, there's some kind of misunderstanding here. Perhaps there is. So a lot of my friends who are like pro homeschooling and also on the voucher ESA, like, like, you know, sort of laissez-faire side say, well, these are fringe cases. Like, like there's all sorts of weird stuff that happens in traditional K-12 schools. And I'm like, mm, maybe, but generally speaking, we get upset when those things happen. Like we want, like parents, there's a limit to what parents should be able to do to their kids, uh, especially with public dollars. Yes. And so, although I'm like generally very sympathetic to parents taking matters into their own hands, even if it's religious instruction, I think pulling your kids out of school to have them do chores or teaching them to be Nazis, I start to wonder what what role the government could should have should have in either incentivizing alternative behavior or stopping that type of behavior. I have two things to say to that. The first one is that I think no one get offended by this, but I do feel like historically, probably the people who were choosing to buy into homeschooling before it was mainstream are probably generally more fringe in terms of their their proclivities or maybe they're they're more religious or like they might be more likely to be in the two categories of people that we just heard from um, than they are now. I think now that it's becoming way more mainstream, now that there are more diverse people who are homeschooling, now that there are more homeschool curricula that have been set up, I think the percentage of people who would f be in a fringy group in one way or another who are homeschooling is probably going to go down considerably. There will probably be a ton more new methods and 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 coursework and and guides and websites and I don't know, like AI getting involved and stuff that there's, I, I just, I think the the fringe cases will become even more fringe going forward. That's one thing. And the second is just like, I, yeah, obviously I don't, I'm not going to endorse either of the clips that we just heard, but it's much like saying like, oh, here's libs of TikTok and the one like crazy purple haired mm -hmm. teacher who tells kindergartners about sex and gender and like saying, okay, then the public schools are entirely bunk or 
all yeah. public schools are the same or all teachers are the same. Like that's just, I mean, I do think that there, it, I agree with him. It's a good point that the the floor is kind of non-existent with, with homeschooling. Um, and that's an important conversation to have, but I do think that the increase in experimentation will be a, a long-term positive. Although I do have a prediction on this front where I think that it's going to go down. I think the percentage of people homeschooling will probably go down at a certain point because I think that they're, I would guess, I venture a guess based on these, this data that these are people with younger kids who are not learning like calculus and and chemistry and stuff. And perhaps when this cohort of kids who started getting homeschooled during the pandemic get older, they might end up, some families might choose to send them to a, a school school. That's my guess. Yeah. I think like one, one interesting point that Oliver made, and you know, I think I slacked you guys saying, I did not expect to agree with as much as what he was saying, is he pointed to the most important organization pushing homeschooling legislation, which is called the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which, as Oliver has pointed out, came up at a time when they were like really fighting against unjust bans and on homeschooling, et cetera. But uh, you know, it is is really a fringe organization, uh, and or at least not re- representative of, of the sort of now diversity of homeschooling options. It's extremely right wing explicitly engaging in uh, Republican politics, anti-abortion, anti-gay, um, openly religious. Now, not all of those things are, are are inherently bad, right? Like being openly religious is not inherently bad. F- families should be entitled to do that. But when the association that's like the broadly representing them uh, is, I think, as exclusive as they are, uh, mm-hmm. it creates issues. And he had a really good segment of an African-American mom who's basically like, yeah, I got to kind of throw in my lot with these people, even though I agree with them. So I wonder, I'm going to wonder how that whole ecosystem will change over time. Perhaps it will. Uh, there was another really interesting part of this uh, article that um, the Washington Post wrote. It was a really long, really amazing article where they looked at Hillsborough County, Florida, which is this bellwether county, which has predicted 20 of the last 24 presidential elections. And they talked about the record increase in homeschooling in this particular county. And, and this basically it gives you the texture of what this could look like. And what you mm-hmm. see is that families are coming together to create collectives, cooperatives, micro schools, et cetera. And this is one of the things that's possible when you give people $8,000. They're able to say, all right, we're coming together uh, and maybe we will pay uh, uh, a certain amount of that $8,000 for uh, one of us to do this full time and actually run a school. And then maybe we'll put it a little bit mm-hmm. more into athletic activities. They talk about this robust series of extracurriculars that has grown up around the homeschools, plays that they're putting on like Mary Poppins, athletic activities like AAU, parent families are using this money for, et cetera. And that like these school-like entities are, are propping yeah. up around them that are a little bit more flexible. I'm generally for those things. The one thing I would ask though, is that when you get public dollars, I would love to see a little bit of oversight. It doesn't have to be onerous. Yeah, I would love to see sense. a standardized test at the end of the year, just so we can compare how the kids are doing. And I think the most powerful thing that Oliver said was around child abuse, which is as, as a former school principal, I can tell you, school is essential to find out whether a kid is getting abused at home. And he makes this point that I've made on this podcast many times, which is being a parent doesn't automatically make you a good person. Like you're a parent and parents are representative of the good and bad in society as everything else. And sometimes there are bad parents who are forcing their kids into doing chores and or doing worse. And if there's no school to interact with that kid, it's very hard for society to find out what's going wrong. And so we need some kind of check in the system for homeschool families so that the kid has some interaction with adults outside Mm -hmm. of the household where some uh, professional can get wind of whether something's going on. Now, it doesn't have to be a witch hunt. 
doesn't have to be McCarthyite. There are all sorts of ways we could do this right. But I'm, I'm worried about the kids that are hidden in society where they're, they're not even, um, there's, there's nobody outside of the family that is aware of what's going on in the kid's life. And yes, those fringe cases matter to me. If they are fringe, if it's 1%, mm-hmm. that's still unacceptable. We need to get at those kids. Yeah. Although I don't, I don't think that, I mean, I, I do think that's kind of always been a risk and I don't think that this increase is a, a, a necessarily a demonstration that that, that risk is increasing on net. I think, you know, if people are going to abuse loopholes to abuse their children, that has always been a challenge, um, with the homeschooling system and that I, I, I don't know that, that there's an increased net concern that this, that the 51% that that's going to mean that there is more, um, more of that happening. But yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I just don't have the answer of, of how to implement that. Like, I don't love the idea of, of people knocking down your doors and, and, and members of the government showing up at your home to interview your child away from you or something. So I'm I'm not entirely sure what that looks like, but I do agree with you that that's a a challenge that needs to be grappled with. Yeah. I I don't know what, what it looks like. I just worry about the kids. Like I I I worry about that kid. Like even that kid who's laughing about their life, that's wrong. That's like horrendous. Like Mm -hmm. that the kid is not going to school and they're doing chores. Mm -hmm. That's screwed up. Now, I I, I don't know if I would force the family to make a different choice because we just as a society, like, like we give parents a, a lot of latitude in, in what they do. Like that's not necessarily abusive, but God, I would want to get through to that family and be like, there's got to be a better way. That, kid, that, that was a yeah. cry for help, that, that post. Okay, Ricky, let me set this up. We've been talking about some bad news. I mean, although what we just talked about is I think a mixture, good, bad, people can see it, whatever they want. But in the economy generally and economic news, it's like doomsaying. Like this reminds me of the Coddling American Mind part one book, which is like essentially like we have this addiction as a society to negative news. And I think nowhere is this more true than in the economy. We talk about rising inequality. The American dream is out of reach. That's just no matter what politician, no matter what party you're in, your politicians are saying things like this, even incumbents. Now, mm-hmm. what's fascinating is there has been a wealth of data recently that shows that things are looking really good. So the US GDP growth came in at 4.9% in an annual rate in the third quarter, which is equal to China's official growth rate. And it's like much, much better than our counterparts in Western society. The unemployment rate is hovering around record lows. Inflation is down now around 3.7%. Core inflation is even lower. Median wage growth is outpacing inflation. Average credit scores are at an all-time high. And a week ago, the Fed and the Treasury released uh, this survey called the Survey of Consumer Finances, which is a big survey they do every three years in which they ask households about their finances. And they found some crazy trends. American wealth is way up since the pandemic. The increases in uh, across the board, um, people at the bottom of the distribution gaining even more uh, proportionally than people at the top. Inequality is down, including racial inequality, educational inequality, urban rural inequality, overall wealth inequality. Debt is much less of a problem. And there's even... There's uh, there's like some fascinating subgroups here, which maybe I'll pause. I won't go into that yet, but I know that you're feeling down, Ricky, but this is generally 100% positive jaw-dropping news when we're supposed to be in a recession. Yeah, I mean, I think that it it defies, um, I mean, obviously the the proportion of, of the cost of housing versus income is is still a challenge and the cost of living is still a challenge, but it definitely defies like the, the kind of common narrative. Um, I mean, 
the typical family is 37% richer in t- 2022. So, I mean, there could be a, could have been a change over the past year, but 2022 to 2019, which is pretty considerable, um, an increase of $51,800 in family net worth over those three years. And the median net worth is now $192,000. So I think that, um, I mean, I would imagine 2019 to 2022 is pretty much the, like, gets captures the entire period of of true shutdown lockdown like you're not gonna maybe go on a vacation this year or you might not be paying for a gym membership or you might pull back from your country club membership or whatever it might be that like people are are spending outside of the household that has that allowed them to um, actually save money or or put this stimulus check uh, into their bank account and not uh, spend it immediately. Um, the debt to income ratio also declined, which has been on a steady trend since 2010, which I actually didn't realize. I feel like you only hear doom and gloom on that front too. Um, but yeah, to your point, more people are, or people on the bottom end of the uh, net worth scale by proportionally had a much larger increase. Inequality it does seem to be closing on the wealth front. Um, the, the groups with the biggest gains were people with no high school diploma, a 60% increase in wealth, uh, black people, a 60% increase and Hispanic people, a 47% increase. There is one caveat that I think is interesting though, is that, um, an average $8,300 of that increase comes from the fact that used car values have gone up by so much. So that is kind of like a weird little anomaly and, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps a not quite as reflective of the economy's health overall. And then also the Census Bureau had a contradictory uh, uh, statistic that came out that said that that wealth was down by 4% over the same uh, period of time. But um, generally, the, the the Fed and Treasury data seems to be more detailed. So, well, I thought theirs was income was down. Um, was oh, it, might, it may have been yeah. income, but there there were there was a contradictory um, finding between the Census Bureau and um, and the Fed and the Treasury. Yeah. Uh, which, so I. But all in all, I think that it is true that people were able to rejigger their financial goals and their their maybe think twice about some of their spending in lockdown. And that could be one silver lining of the fact that we were all forcibly locked up. (laughs) I don't know. Well, okay. Two other groups that you didn't mention in terms of how they've done. Now, uh, Noah Smith had a really good article about this in a great chart. But uh, so this is, by the way, everything I'm about to say is counter to the narrative that people assume, which is that the 1%. 0.1% 0.1% are the ones pulling all the gains out. Now, I have all sorts of issues around antitrust and taxation policy around asking those people to do more. But this data unequivocally says it's the bottom proportionally that's doing better. Uh, people who are under tw- 35 years old increased uh, their uh, median net worth over that period of time, 143%. And people in the 25%... Wait, just, to, just to clarify something, are, the, are those the same people increasing or increasing from people that were that age before? Same same people. So people who okay. are currently but that's also under not surprising. If you're that young, then you probably are starting from. Here's the surprising one, Ricky. Though bottom twenty five percent of wealth distribution, nearly nine hundred percent increase in their net worth. That is staggering. Now mm-hmm. I think it could be earned income tax credit. Could be a combination of a lot of things. Now, what are the drivers? You talked about the debt to income ratio. We'll come back to that because I, I do want to talk about the risks that we have today, but. Um, that is a driver. Assets increased in value. Primary residence values went up 24% over that period of time. 
retirement accounts did really well. Interestingly, even bonds, which in a, in a period of increased inflation, bond values tend to go down. But um, the holdings of bonds went up uh, for the median bond-owning household by $70,000. Now, what accounts for this? I think people, even though their bonds might have been worth less, like people who have 401ks, et cetera, that allocate to bonds, were just continuing to add more to those bond holdings, even if the bonds were worth less on an individual basis. And you talked about another driver, which is the 8300 median household uh, mm-hmm. increase for their used car, which is not as fungible as other things. Now, looking ahead, there are questions about where we go from here. Now, we were supposed to have a recession. We haven't really quite had one yet. And actually, like by a lot of definitions, we're in a boom, um, which is weird because people don't feel like they are in a boom right now. Now, uh, I think everything comes down to housing at this point. And um, one of our sort of resident uh, pessimists, uh, GMOs, Jeremy Grantham, who has been a, he calls himself a bubble historian, but he has made money on basically every bubble in his lifetime. He talked about the risk of housing. Uh, Let's go to this clip. It's plausible that they would feel the pain quickest. Everything to do with real estate, of course, is pretty much certain, although the delays and special cases there are much more impressive, but eventually it grinds through. When you lower the mortgage, people can afford to pay more, and eventually they pay more and push up the prices. So at 3%, you're paying 400000 for your house. And when the mortgage goes to 6%, you suddenly realize you can't afford to buy the house. You pull your bid, market backs off, and eventually the prices come down. So mortgages move to fill the available affordability, and house prices do exactly that. They're not reliable in the short term. They're incredibly reliable in the long term. And over a 40-year period of driving down mortgage rates, of course, you drove up house prices all over the world, pretty much. And um, and now that rates have gone up, of course, it will drive down. And and the ones that flow through quickly, some of the Scandinavian countries like Sweden have a, have a fairly severe housing pullback. The ones that have a more convoluted system, more locked-in mortgages like the U.S., they, they take their time, but eventually people can't afford to buy a house at a high mortgage and the prices come down. So that's pretty reliable. Yeah, and you can see that happening across the world, can't you? You can see house prices coming down all over Europe and Canada, beginning in the US, particularly in Scandinavia and in the UK, it's increasingly obvious as well because we're, we're at that point where no one's buying and no one's selling. We're at the, the paralysis stage before you would expect prices to fall quite dramatically. And that's exactly the same in the US, paralysis. And house prices are worse for the ordinary household. They're worse for the economy than stocks because they're substantially more broadly owned. It's really an important part of the median family's income picture and, and capital picture. And it is not stocks only. And uh, so the, the motto should be don't don't mess with housing. The The super motto should be never have a housing bubble at the same time as you have a stock market bubble, which is the the great uh, mistake that the Japanese made with the biggest bubble in history on both fronts at the same time. So Ricky, what he's saying is persuasive to me, which is this big risk in our system, which is this supply demand problem, you know, what the Berkeley economist John Quigley called the lock-in effect, which is like when these rates rise as much as they have, uh, as we've talked about before, people don't want to sell, but then also people can't buy. And that creates all sorts of weird stuff in the market, not not to mention yeah. the rental market, which we'll get to. Uh, and it, 
if this is true, if, if prices go down and that there's a crisis, a housing crisis, that alone would be enough to take a battle axe to this so-called boom that we have right now. It's a real risk. Yeah, I I mean, I think the housing thing is is super profound. I, I feel really fortunate to have just kind of like gotten in just the the right time. But I mean, I imagine if like literally just a couple months difference, like the course of my life and the course of a, a ton of other young Americans' lives would be completely different based on the fact that the interest rates have changed so considerably. And I think a lot of us, especially with the lack of like financial literacy, just didn't, I mean, I can say for myself that the difference between a 3% and a 7% mortgage rate sounded negligible. And then you actually find out that that's like thousands of dollars every month for 30 years. It's it's hard to even wrap your head around how how much I think this will warp the the housing situation for for Gen Z, for millennials who are who are buying in um, or who who are looking to settle down. And I I wonder as well with like as as many um like foreign buyers that are showing up in urban centers and and investors how cash buyers buying up these these homes and renting will even further warp things although i i do think that looking forward in the housing market there's going to be it's not i think that some of the patterns will be slum, somewhat broken because people have way more flexibility today in terms of where they live and um, and they might choose not to live in crowded urban centers that young people traditionally have, or they may choose to live further away from their office because they're only there a couple days. So I do think that that will make it a little less predictable, perhaps. Uh, but I, I do think that going forward, especially for people who have not yet bought in to the housing market, that that's something that I, I'm... I'm pretty terrified for for what that looks like for the next generation and and their wealth going forward if they're not building wealth with with a mortgage payment and they're burning it with rent. Well, and you talk about rent. So developers right now are finishing projects that begin with the lower interest rates. And uh, there's a huge inventory hitting the housing market right now. By many estimates, this will be uh, the largest increase in available units that we've seen in many decades. Mm -hmm. And so that'll be interesting. That will drive down rents for a short period of time. But the problem is on the, the other thing that's going to happen simultaneous to this is that the people who've been starting projects over the past year or two and, and continue to start projects, those projects are drying up. And there's you know something like a quarter of builders think that apartment construction will fall by 50% in 2024, which would be a depression essentially in mm -hmm. the uh, construction market and would have downstream effects on rents and the affordability for people. So that's a problem. And then you kind of put this all together. It's just a lot of chaos and change. And then, you know, Grantham talked about equities. Uh, there's also, I think, a misunderstanding about what's happening in the US uh, equities market. There's this sort of term called the Magnificent Seven, which is like the seven, you know, powerful stocks like Apple, Google, Meta, et cetera. Uh, those are driving most of the gains in the U.S. equity mm -hmm. stock market. And Grantham talks about how there's this index called the Russell 2000 Index, which is uh, the smallest 2000 stocks in the Russell 3000 Index, essentially small companies. And he talks about that these are, in, he calls them zombie stocks. He says that there's a huge density of these, something like 40% that are zombie stocks, meaning they have high leverage, high debt, and they're using debt to pay off debt, which means that they're incredibly at risk. So you put those two things together, which is the crisis in housing, 
um, the crisis in equities, which Brantham thinks is a bubble. And then third, you talk about savings, right? We've been talking about how great it is that Americans had been saving so much. Well, they're not saving anymore. The New York Fed noted recently that since 2022, the U.S. savings rate dropped below its pre-pandemic average, while savings rates elsewhere in the Western world have actually been going, uh, have been staying relatively steady. And actually, part of what's driving the surge or and the sustainability of the U.S. economy is people are spending, but they're running mm-hmm. out of money. So you put these three things together, and I feel like if I were to predict, I don't know enough to say whether there's a recession or not. But if there was one uh, in the next year, uh, it would be the combination of those three forces: the lack of savings. Uh, the housing crisis, because those two things come together, because people then won't be able to afford, you'll see defaults, which is not something we've seen uh, at any major number since the housing crisis uh, in 2008. Um, and then you have this equity issue, uh, which is if it's a bubble, you know, this is what he calls a super bubble, multiple bubbles popping at the same time. So this seems like a risk. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a, an expert enough to say, and nobody really would know, like you make a lot of money if you could predict these things, but I could see storm clouds on the horizon, even though the data looks pretty decent. So even our cheerful segment has devolved into more doom and gloom. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, let's let's see what the listeners have to say. We haven't gone to voicemails in a while. Um, we have a listener who called in about your segment or your episode with uh, Robbie on social media. Let's listen to this clip. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Hi, um, my name is Dr. Deborah Kutnick. I'm a behavioral pediatrician in Ashland, Oregon, and I've been listening to your discussion of social media and its effects. And um, one thing that I would very much like to bring to the discussion are actually the neurodevelopmental effects of screen time not just psychological effects, but actually anatomical brain effects that occurs. And the reason for that is because young parents now who are in their 20s and 30s were raised on electronics, spend all of their time on electronics, and are not spending that direct face-to-face, one-on-one time with their own children. And so now that next generation, even babies, I see parents put six-week-olds in front of a tablet, in front of a screen, playing YouTubes and videos for literally hours at a time. And this is very common. This is not, this is not unusual. This is really the norm now, where young children, very young children from infancy, are being exposed to screens for hours and hours. And the impact that has on the developing brain is enormous, because we know that in those first five years of life, when you have 90% of your brain growth, that there are critical periods of development for different skills. And that includes social skills, empathy, and interaction. And we know those are dependent on those caregiver-infant interactions, healthy interactions. And they're not getting that. They're getting completely different inputs. And we're seeing so many behavioral problems in children we're seeing so many developmental delays in children, and all these things predated the COVID pandemic and people even being on screens more. I mean, certainly that has exacerbated these problems, but the problems were developing before that. So I think you really need to broaden how you're looking at this whole question, not just social media, but the pervasive use of screens in our society. 
and look at that from a neurodevelopmental perspective as well. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I've, I've long said that I, I think a lot of um, like older people look to me in my age group as the kind of translators for what's going on with younger kids. But, you know, I didn't have an iPhone until I was 10. I did not grow up with an iPad. And I, I think that I'm just at like the cusp of all the dysfunction and my, my cohort's not doing so hot on our own um, without, even though iPads didn't exist when we were growing up. So I'm, I'm even more concerned um, as time goes forward. I, I, although I am heartened, especially like to see the response to this John Hype piece that I wrote and stuff like there, there does seem to be a vastly increased uh, uh, amount of attention that's being paid to this issue in recent years. Um, and, and parents listening to voices of younger people saying that this is not a healthy way to grow up and actually um, trying to be responsive to that. Yeah, I and you know, you and I went to this debate between Robbie and Jonathan Heights mm-hmm. in a while ago. It must have been two years ago now. Yeah, a long time. And I, I tend to be on and on the side of height and and I'm very skeptical of of screen time generally, and I would be pretty uh sparing uh, as a parent, and I certainly was as a school principal. Um, although I do appreciate Robbie as a contrarian, which is why I like I, I'm I'm glad you guys did that interview. Like I don't agree with a lot of what he says. It's always good in society when everybody's, you know, zagging that somebody's going the other way, right? And and I, I appreciate him, like he's a he pushes back and forces people who are like me, who are very skeptical of the role of, of cell phones and social media and pretty alarmed about it. It forces us to be as rigorous as possible in our mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah, absolutely, and not to just indulge in a completely unchecked moral panic. Yes. Well. Anyways, thanks for listening and please rate, review and subscribe. And if you want to cheer me up in the voicemails, um, the, our number is 321-200-0570 and there will be a new episode on Thursday. Well, and one tomorrow also. So yeah, we'll do the, the Israel one tomorrow. Oh, so yeah. yeah, we're we're trying to get more out generally because we know that like we tend on this podcast to talk about domestic issues that we think are not covered uh, well by sort of mass media, right? Like we often, like, you know, what what you turn on CNBC or MSNBC or Fox News or whatever, like we want to try to find stuff that isn't really being touched on enough. And we tend to avoid international issues, but this is an, an exceptional time where the international and the domestic politics have collided. So we're going to be outside of our traditional episodes, going to be doing a lot more on the Israel-Palestinian conflict and perhaps a lot more than that. So Uh, We'll be doing those on the off days, like Wednesdays, Mondays, occasionally Fridays. So stay tuned for that. Thank you very much, everybody. Bye.